Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Tim. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Uh, you and I were uh, on social, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, and we were exchanging messages along with everybody else because it's the only place we to get to know each other anymore in the midst mm-hmm. of a pandemic. And uh, you're with a tech firm here in the nonprofit space, and I'm sort of a uh, rabble rouser in the podcast space and the fundraising community. And I thought, what's this guy talking? This guy's talking about some pretty profound stuff, some stuff I've been reading. So um, I'm delighted that you reached out and started the conversation. Tim, we're going to have a great conversation today. But before we do that, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself? Well, Jason, thank you for having me. Really excited. Um, I've been following your work for a while, actually. 
And so I'm Tim Sarantonio with Neon One. Uh, we're a uh, technology company that provides a connected fundraising platform for fundraisers to uh, build deeper relationships with their donor community. Um, my background, I'm director of corporate brand, which is just a fancy way of saying they're the face, you know, they throw my face out there. Uh, for good or for bad in some ways. And so uh, I, I think um, there's a lot of things that uh, we need to think more deeply about. And so I also take a very philosophical approach when it comes to fundraising, uh, because I think we need to. I think this is a critical inflection point for for taking a step back and even saying, why are we doing things the way that we're doing? And so that's my approach to all this, and that's why I'm excited to be here because we're kind of kindred spirits in that way. Yes, Tim. So when you and I uh, first connected, it was mm-hmm. Fieri's stuff. I was commenting about Paulo Fieri's stuff. Tell us a little bit about your wh- – wh- where did Fieri get on your radar? Tell us who Fieri is, and uh, let's tee up the conversation <laughs> there before we get to the big idea. Sure. So uh, I uh, I got my – my evolution into the nonprofit sector. And I've been working in the sector for, for, you know, probably over 15 years at this point and, and specifically for neon one for 10 years. Yeah. And, and that's because I was a failed academic. I uh, went to a state school called Plattsburgh state and upstate New York, largest Canadian studies program in the United States, by the way. And I want to be a labor historian. So I didn't want to look at unions or things like that. I always want to look at the the kind of the individual workers movements that might bubble up. So things like wildcat strikes. I looked at like dairy workers getting, you know, driving up the, the highway in the Adirondacks, getting pot shots in the 30s when, you know, scabs were, were trying to get through with their milk deliveries, right? Yes, yes, yes. So I said, okay. In order to become an academic, one must continue to rack up academic points, right? Like it's the gamification of of academia. So I got into three different programs after uh, on, you know, in gearing up for graduation in 2004, Uh, Syracuse, Columbia University and the National University of Ireland and Galway. So. Galway and and Columbia were two one-year programs. And I was like, ding, ding, let's hammer both of those out in two years. So I lived in Ireland for a year and I got a degree in post-colonial theory. Then I moved back to New York City, went to Teachers College, which is how I got introduced to more deeply. I mean, I've learned about free air in in, in, uh, undergrad, but the curriculum development, the way that people learn, that was why I went to to Teachers College, because I wanted to teach labor history. So then I got those degrees. Uh, The second one was in the history of education, which... Quick, funny story. I misread the description of it, and I thought it was like teaching history. And it was yeah. actually, no, the history of education, not right. and education. <laughs> Big difference, folks. Read read what you're actually going to be paying $60,000 in one year for. And so uh, I learned about the Puritan movements and yep. the foundations of of why we have our education system today. So then I moved to Chicago and uh, did what every academic who isn't in a PhD program did, which is work at coffee shops and bars. And then I got rejected from every program two times in a row. And my dad said, get a job. Yeah. And so then I said, "Okay, let's take that passion for 
what people are doing on the ground and apply that in a way that that isn't working and sitting necessarily in a, a cubicle all the time. So yeah. I got a job as a grant writer at a day labor organizing center in the south side of Chicago. And, you know, we can kind of take the direction of, of me from there. But uh, basically, it was a trial by fire of getting into the nonprofit sector, toxic workplace. But uh, but I did fall in love overall. So maybe it's a, a toxic relationship, uh, but it's one that I love. Uh, I was so I had finished. So when I was first introduced to Paulo, I, I the mm-hmm. um, I had finished graduate school, was taking some was thinking about enrolling in the Ph.D. program in urban education at Temple. Yep. And um, I had a professor and she introduced me. I was in this class. So she's a she's a she's a black woman who's teaching this class and her in sort of introductory urban ed stuff. So graduate level sort of stuff. And she's introducing his and a number of other sort of Marxists who sort of approach education from that mm-hmm. sort of lens. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm the only I think I was the only white guy in the room. Right. Um, and she really got me, I mean, she, and at the time I was working in, 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 at an inner city school, um, nonprofit school for low income kids. And I was sort of wrestling with my own privilege and my own identity and sort of the nonprofit sector and sort of knew I had a path, but didn't know what it was. It was the notion of narration sickness that really got to me. It was the idea that the, the, the person who has the privilege of sort of telling the story at the front of the room. So in, in that, yep. And that we need to be a little more careful and critical about who gets the privilege of standing up on the platform. And I think that's in some ways sort of route put a sort of ribbon on this sort of brief conversation. You know, it's the, it's the idea that sort of a lot of our voices in the nonprofit space and in fundraising in particular have sort of had the privilege of standing up on the platform for the last you know, 50 years and sort of telling the story. And I don't know that there's been a lot of critical thinking amongst the listening audience. And that's essentially what Paulo was advocating for, that there has to be more of a genuine interaction and, and, and dialogue. That's ultimately where he came to. Um, there's, yeah. there's got to be a dialogue. And so if you're just up on the platform sort of spouting off, you know, marketing speak, um, I don't know that we're necessarily advancing, you know, what it is we're trying to do. Well, and there's and there's some really fascinating things that that I don't get to flex this muscle a oh, lot. I'm gonna by make the way, you flex Jason. it. Yeah, warm it up. Uh, and 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 my my team at Neon One completely understands where I come politically, and <laughs> and I think they find it amusing uh, as well. But but at the end of the day, you know, um, there is always kind of it. All, no matter what, it comes down to identity. And so if we even look at some of the work that yeah. that that Freire was inspired by things like, like Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist and the ideas of hegemony, right? Like this, this kind of, what is the, the, the dominant culture, but then even from that evolved uh, critiques from like the Frankfurt school, uh, CLR James, Stuart Hall. um, But even they all, all have elements where it gets really interesting. If you start to interlay that with, even some of the more anarchist critiques of power dynamics that a lot of Marxists tend to to miss. Um, and so a lot of it, even from the the education piece, I was heavily influenced by a Texas, Texas Marxist called um, Harry Cleaver. Mm-hmm. And Harry Cleaver 
uh, articulates autonomous Marxism and, and where that applies into the nonprofit space is that there are spheres of resistance that people are always doing and, and, and employing, right? So when we look at like even power structures within uh, the nonprofit sector, you could see this with, with resistance against board directives where yeah. it might be handed down by like the yeah, and we're seeing this in in academia uh in terms of you know people arguing about well i don't want that gift from that donor because they don't like me critiquing the racist policies that we've had or we need to take that statue down right yeah but you yeah. see this all over the place for me my background is not necessarily higher education philanthropy um and that kind of gets into my big idea later on, but the the overall element here is that power structures are fluid, and there's always resistance that's happening beneath the surface, no matter what. It is a conversation. It is a ebb and flow, and if we think that things are just solidified, both in power, in money, in, in uh, culture, uh, that's actually where we get into major problems with that friction of people not understanding that fluidity. Well, Tim, we're certainly warmed up. And if we have, <laughs> uh, if we haven't uh, scared half of our listeners away because they can't dare uh, <laughs> stick with us, uh, maybe the other half we will, uh, we'll keep around for the next half hour. So Tim, we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea, bold opinion, uh, maybe to some degree, we've already sort of teed up some of what that might yeah. be, but uh, what do you got for us this morning? Well, and and this is where I draw those folks back. By the way, oh, right? Yeah, like, like I'm I'm, I'm still a big tent approach on. guy. I'm yeah. a big tent approach guy, and so <laughs> so I do want to push the narrative around around that we're hearing some of the Lilly School research that's put put out about decreasing American household giving numbers. Yeah. Right. I'm seeing this data cited a lot. And and what I want to want to do is push us to think what that tells us and actually where things are going with individual giving. Right. I feel that there's a opportunity yeah. that we have if we rethink what that data and other more in all honesty, more up to date data is telling us because the numbers being cited are pre pandemic. Even the big report that they put out is mm -hmm. pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. yep. It's yep. 2016 data. It's 2018 data. And if we are making strategic decisions in our fundraising practices on pre-pandemic data, that's going to put us in a big, a big, you know, problem spot. In my yeah. opinion, yeah. So some of the 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 elements that I want us to push forward on are one rethinking what that actually tells us and to what it can teach us in terms of our own fundraising practice. And what I mean by that is, first of all, the more recent data from the Fundraising Effectiveness Project, which is the largest analysis of individual transaction data in the world. Yeah, and that's yeah. done on a monthly basis. Um, and it's an initiative from the Association of Fundraising Professionals and Giving Tuesday now, if people weren't aware of that. And so it looks at individual giving on a monthly basis from several different data providers and is a much better barometer than U.S. Census data, which is really heavily what Lilly School is relying on. And what we're seeing is that while household giving had a downward trend, the pandemic, we're seeing it 
reverse slightly. Yeah. It's going back up a little bit. Yeah. And so that's not to say that people the problem, Jason, that I overall have is that the definition when people see that is they either blame donors. Well, donors aren't giving anymore. No, it the, the, the big idea is that it's not that they're not giving anymore. It's that their priorities have changed. It's that people are giving, but they're doing it in different ways that aren't being picked up by these data sets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, case it, it, no coincidence. I'm, I'm sitting here reaching. I'm reaching for this. So I just read, um, yeah, Lucy's book. Uh, oh, Lucy, I love that book. Yeah, I just read Lucy's book. Uh, Bernholtz is her last name. She teaches at Stanford, and she's talking about how we've, you know, the sector has largely sort of commodified. We think we've democratized. She, I, I think it's uh, terribly eloquent the way she puts this very briefly at the beginning of the book. We think we've democratized fundraising, but in fact, we've just commodified it. So we've just created all these various different platforms and various different ways for people to get, do their giving. And what people are doing is, is they're fleeing the commodification. They're fleeing the idea that it's basically like, like, like like we can, you know, like one of the, uh, uh, somebody, somebody recently, I read uh, part of the sort of giving USA uh, leadership said, said a lot of us are participating in what she calls fast food philanthropy. I think a lot of us (laughs) are sort of tired of that. Yes. Um, And I think that story is becoming immensely clear that some of the, you know, the renewal rates that are, for, for example, coming out of the, the the effectiveness study are basically telling a story that they're tired of eating at McDonald's and the, their behavior is no different than that sort of that consumer behavior. They're just sort of hopping around from from fast food joint to fast food joint, never sort of letting it sort of enter into their system in a much more meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why the, uh, and I think in, in your recent report, the whole notion of the social imaginary, I think is fascinating yep. that you've sort of woven that in there. And this gets back to the idea of sort of telling a story. I think you've got a lot of fundraisers out there who are sort of missing what the collective story that we've been told is, or that we're mm-hmm. telling ourselves. And I'm counting on a group like yours to sort of help tell a different story. Cause you're, t- you're basically telling me the data is different. And, and I don't know that that story's out there. I don't know that that story's that. I don't know the I don't know that the actual story that's out there is the is the right story. Does that make sense? I, I think we I think we're absolutely on the same page. P- part of this is is the data itself is disconnected. This is not like other sectors in that there is a unified standard around even what quote unquote fundraising is, and that's not necessarily what. Giving USA, which we're a member of, and I yeah, am yeah. supportive of, but but the Giving USA data that comes out is very heavily reliant on the business master file that comes out of the U.S. government, and is also they even took away the Amazon Web Services API support for that. So, like yeah, from a tech yeah. standpoint, the government's not helping us here, which is why initiatives like the Open Nine Ninety project, what giving to Tuesday's data collaborative is doing where we have data providers that are are basically continuing to silo and hold on to in a scarcity mindset from their business practices. This is mine. And if I open this data up, then it's going to hurt my stock price or it's going to hurt my ability to market to nonprofits. And what we need in our sector is an abundance mindset of sharing what is actually happening beneath the surface 
across the board. That's what I love about FEP is that Neon One, Bloomerang, Donor Perfect, Kila, to just name the ones that are currently providing data, all feed into this database monthly with no ego to say what is actually happening from a transactional basis. And it's still lagging metrics when you get down to it because it's what happened in the past, but it can tell us future behavior. And future behavior is that even all giving levels from a dollar all the way up to Mackenzie Scott numbers, yeah, it's going back up a bit. It's reversing that downward trend that we've been seeing for years, but we're going to lose it if we continue to do the fast food philanthropy of what you've talked about. The retention numbers still suck and they continue to go down. But is that okay. Okay. But that's the, there's nothing wrong with the data. The data is not wrong. I watch people sort of critique when this information comes out and I've gotten caught up in it myself. It's not in this, again, this gets back to Fieri, the idea that whoever gets the privilege of standing at the front of the room and telling Mm -hmm. the story of Mm -hmm. what the data Mm -hmm. is telling us, I think, and my critique on the, the effectiveness project narrative is, is that it, you know, the story that it's basically telling us, Tim, is it's basically telling us that renewal is not really what the what fundraising is. There's a conversion that's not happening. We're not converting relationships away from fast food philanthropy. We're not converting relationships away from um, you know, giving Tuesday like behavior. And, in, yeah. and and that's all that. I mean, how many, how many more decades of fundraising <laughs> effectiveness project do I need to convince myself that you've designed a platform, you know, a study that basically tells me, you know, how to acquire the donor, but you don't know how to take the relationship any further than that. That's a conversion <laughs> strategy, not a renewal strategy. Absolutely. And this is the biggest, and again, I'm on the executive board of that, and I continue to – I have a meeting today with them, and I continue to go back and say, I feel like we've told the data story. We haven't told the path forward, though, and and we failed if our intention and giving USA's intention is to create a transformative giving experience for for the average American, for instance. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. Tim, why and, is it so, – so get in that meeting that you're going into today and ask them why they're not connecting that data with the fact that every one of my guests gets on here, whether before or after <laughs> I hit the record button, and basically says they want to get out of fundraising because it's transactional work. All your data at, a, at uh, the, the Effectiveness Project is proving is that it's transactional work. Yes. And yes. so at some point, we just have to say, look, your job description is inconsistent with what you actually want to do. That's again, this is this is why it was so fascinating, Tim, that you were talking about the social imaginary because I'm sitting yep. there thinking, I mean, you're, you're I think you're I hope you're piecing it together why the idea that a tech guy who knows what you know and looks at the information that you look at, these fundraisers are telling themselves a collectively shared story that's completely incompatible with what it is they desire to do. And I think it comes down to another element. Going back to that core point, and my other big idea (laughs) is the way we learn about fundraising is borked in our sector. Borked? I don't want to use the F word, but it's like (laughs) basically uh, – let's take my experience, right? I I told about the failed academia thing. When I got my first nonprofit job, it was in 2008. The recession hit. All the grant money went away. And immediately I said, I think I have to pivot to individual fundraising. I can't rely on 
foundations to give me my money anymore. Now, yeah. the entire nonprofit's budget was $89,000 a year for two staff members, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I said, okay, um, I need to fundraise. And what's fundraising? Uh, events. Yes. That was immediately where I went because it's like, well, they did that. He's wearing the the tux in The Shining, like that's the big gala, you know, like that's where you you do things. Like they even, I was watching Succession, and they're doing the same yeah, thing. Yeah, Everybody, yeah. the narrative for this is Stuart Hall. The yeah. pop culture element is yeah. that the 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 way that we're told philanthropy works from pop culture on down and even how we teach ourselves that is it's it is transaction driven and you see this because one we're seeing a continued drop in professional association membership from things like AFP yeah. or they're tr- or people are trying to find alternatives such as AADO yeah, to yeah. better serve themselves because they yeah. don't feel that it's being represented for them or, so that's or, issue or, number or, one. Sell, or tells a more accurate narrative that aligns with their story. I mean, the ADO is basically aligns with a narrative that an African-American who tries to land in fundraising and every one of their donors that they happen to engage with is does not look and live in the world that they come from is an understanding of the social imaginary, not an understanding of what the damn data is telling you. I mean, it's not necessarily terribly comfortable to, to be an African-American, you know, 35 year old black woman who's sitting across the table every time that with somebody that looks like you or me. Yeah, that's not what the data is telling anybody. And 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 if anybody hasn't picked up Collecting Courage, the book, it's an amazing it's an amazing book of of stories of fundraisers of color and their experience. People like Crystal Cherry, um, uh, Kashana Palmer, things like that, people like that. And so that's narrative number one. Narrative number two that nobody likes talking about or wants to basically put their head in the sand is the business of tech in the nonprofit space. We well, are I'll seeing talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> we, and I'll talk about it too. We, we are seeing a, a watershed moment of consolidation happening in the, the, the sector where private equity companies and other types of investment firms are coming in and seeing, Oh, I think we can make money off of this. But what they're doing is focusing on if we even look at what happened with GoFundMe and Classy, right, recently, yeah, yeah, or acquisitions yeah. of Network for Good, Salsa, Every Action, things like that. A lot of it is that these roll ups are focusing on the fact that, oh, people like to give online. Yeah. And it's like, that's a part of it. But one, it reinforces the transactional nature of things. Yeah. And two, the flush of money influences how we learn about fundraising because if there's decreasing investment of professional fundraising, if organizations, especially small shops, are relying on free webinars <laughs> to yeah, yeah. learn about things, who's the ones putting those out? Yeah. Typically tech companies. Yeah. And so that's a narrative. And look, I'm the corporate brand guy for my company. I get it. Because I have to do that, too. I enjoy it in many ways. But for me, I want to create a much better abundance mindset so we can have these conversations realistically and authentically to actually be transformative in how people learn to properly fundraise. I will check my ego at the door and give up lead generation if, if I can push a better narrative 
that will actually help the sector because that's that's I feel like if there's no nonprofits and no donors to support, then the tech companies go away anyway. If everyone's just sick of 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 charities in the first place, yeah, yeah, I've had enough. Yeah, so uh, this conversation is probably creeping up. We're probably at like three twenty five by the time we broadcast this conversation, and I've had so we're talking about hundreds of conversations where I'm constantly sort of hearing this yeah. between the lines of what these fundraisers are saying. And understand when we launched this thing, Tim, three years ago, I deliberately said I'm not going to create a platform for more of these, you know, marketing and PR wonks to get up on yep. my on my my podcast and basically sell their shit. I said we're yep. actually going to talk to fundraisers. Oh, good, we can curse. Okay, yeah, oh, thank of course you. we can. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're not going to we're not going to get on here and basically let them sort of hijack the narrative. I'm actually going to talk to the fundraisers who are in the field, doing the work, interacting yep. with the donors. Well, yep. all of this is sort of playing out at the same time that we're landing in a you know hyper period of social unrest as a country and as, yep. as perhaps a global you know global context in many ways in the midst of a pandemic. And then the fundraising space and our sort of little microcosm is sort of at this odds with each other on various different ends of the country on sort of how we define our work and those sorts of things. And I'm just thinking, folks, you're not listening to your own story. You've been told a story. You think the story is what it is. It's not actually the story. You've got to, at some point, get across the lunch table, going back to fear. You've got to get back to the lunch table at some point and actually have a conversation with your donors. But the narrative that's playing out scares the shit out of us. We're scared to sit at the lunch table with our donors because ultimately we've got a data set back at the office that our board and our boss are looking at that convinces us that you're going to come back with a million dollar check every time it doesn't work that way you know 28 to 35 year old young major gifts officer looks at a database and says this donor has been consistently giving and this wealth screening says they are they they're worth x millions of dollars and the the boss the only story the boss knows how to see is that you sure as hell better come back with a check that's not fundraising no. And 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 we're ignoring the fact that the most powerful metrics are not the the one-time gifts but the lifetime value of a donor. That that we need to be paying attention to something like growth and giving percentages and retention yep. more. Yep. Right? Like whenever I go into a presentation about key performance indicators, you know, average gift size is the like one of the last things that I want to talk about. And and especially growth and giving is such a more interesting the data. Gr- the point. growth and giving data point that's coming out of the the effectiveness study too, right? Am I right? Yeah. I think that okay because I think that I think I remember looking at that in grad school that that was that was twelve or fifteen years ago when that all sort of came came about and I've watched that. I think I think the fascinating thing about that particular component of that study is, and this is the case I made in the first book is that yep. we've got to start looking at subsequent gifts and growth and giving actually makes you look at the subsequent gift. We've got yes. to start looking at the, you can't just look at the one gift and sort of draw all these conclusions. If you're not sort of seeing, we do this in my seminar, we have a, we look at a series of three different types of gifts that are qualitatively defined by the donor, not quantitatively like size of gift, but actually what's the giving experience like we're so damn obsessed with giving Tuesday like giving that we can't understand the story that exists beyond and, that. And even giving Tuesday themselves as an entity is sick of talking about giving right. Tuesday like behavior. They want right. they want. So. So. And what's interesting is that in the data there, people who who. So, OK, in our upcoming report that we're doing on individual giving, we tried to analyze over 50 different res- resources 
yeah. along with proprietary research. And yeah. within it, what we're seeing is from fundraising effectiveness project data, from Giving Tuesday data, Giving USA data, when you extend the giving season, first of all, there's this narrative that everybody keeps putting out. 31% of gifts or a third of gifts come in December. Okay. Sure. First, that's wrong. That's wrong, yeah. actually. And then even if you look at it and unpack the date, because always I say, where did, who, whose agenda follow the money, basically? Whose agenda yes, is, is that data? Yeah. That gets and back so, to your, uh, see, that's where your teacher's college experience actually mm-hmm. gives you a hell of a lot of good because you're not speaking as a marketing wonk. You're talking as somebody who went to Columbia. Uh, and, and, and when you read the report, citationmachine.net was heavily helpful in getting me APA <laughs> 7 uh, proper citation within the entire report, right? Because yeah. I want people to look at this because in it, I, I wanted to cite research that are, are from so-called competitors. I don't care. If it's somebody who technically has another product, if the data is going to help people re-envision what the individual giving experience can be like, then we should be paying attention to that. We shouldn't hold on to that. In fact, Jason, when we come out with it, we're going to put interactive dashboards that are completely ungated for anybody to use. Just go. I don't care. I don't need an email address for you to look at December giving trends or pandemic giving. That's just going to be on the website, and I'm going to give everybody the charts for free. Just use them because this is how we're going to actually move forward is to not hold on to the egos or the the proprietary nature of our data when it comes to this stuff. So interestingly enough, though, we did look at things like time of day of giving and day of week of giving. Yeah, right. And the big thing when I want, I really want to stress this. If you look at that and see the fact that at least in our database, the you know millions of transactions people gave on a Thursday at eleven thirty. Yeah. What I don't want you to do is start to say, "I'm going to send out emails at eleven thirty on a Thursday, and that's when I'm going to get gifts." That's not what that that should tell you. What that should tell you is pay attention to what your donors are telling you that's right that's about right. when they want yep. to give yep. that should simply every single question should be like well that's a nice data point from a benchmark standpoint what does that mean to me yep. and what does that mean to my donor experience anyway i'm getting a little ranty sorry jason so yeah i th- i think first of all i i think and, and i've and i've talked with a number of my guests on here and i think one of the things that the 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 tech you're sort of i think i think part of what the tech crm prospect research sort of world can do maybe yeah. interesting so i'm reading between you the lines tell of, me what we can do because yeah cause well i'll tell you what i think you're gonna listen do. yeah I, I i think this is what i think this is what essentially the fundraising community the social imaginaries begging for um is for this uh and, and you've probably heard me sort of trumpeting this horn the idea that a lot of our crm and prospect management because i'm sitting here constantly constantly I mean, even my sponsor here on the podcast is 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 a tech company and so i'm mm-hmm. sitting here thinking okay how do we get how do we get these players in the sector in the right role? And I think it's the yeah. shift from being a consumer to a citizen. So yeah. how do you how do you be a prospect research firm and a CRM company and actually orient the sector towards the reality that our donors are citizens and not consumers? Yes. Because all of your competition in the broader marketplace. So when you think about Salesforce, for example, if yep. you're if you're black, but if you're our friends over at Blackbot, for example, and you're and you're com- basically competing with Salesforce, all your worldview is basically oriented towards the consumer. 
And I think we've got to, within the nonprofit sector, sort of wall off this notion. And again, this is all coming out of sort of everything that I'm sort of saying about the difference between a donor, a consumer donor versus a citizen-like donor. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we start looking at data that comes out of a, a, a platform like yours at Neon One? How do we start looking at that information and understand that these are citizens in a community with which we share with them rather yeah. than just looking at them like a consumer that we want to exploit? Well, one, I love that. And two, the things that, that tech companies like ours have to do in order to take that step is to properly prioritize donor privacy and donor security of the data itself. That's yeah. step number one is is an ethical management around things like machine learning, yeah. around things like like these aggregated data sets and ensuring that above all, that an individual citizen, if they're making a donation, isn't having it resold across for lists or, uh, you know, acquisition uh, for direct mail or, or you know, I, I make a donation for a political campaign and then I'm suddenly getting texts that I've never opted into because and I understand how the tech works when it comes to the SMS side of all this stuff. And I'm just getting slammed with it. And I know it's going to start happening once it starts opening up beyond the political because the political space is like the 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 harboringer of what's to come for the average nonprofit space. If we aren't paying attention to political giving, then in terms of what's happening there, then we're going to be like completely dumbfounded and blindsided when it comes to the quote unquote average nonprofit, because it goes political giving, university giving, and then everybody else basically in terms of, of the flow of money. Right. And so that's why, you know, you kept hearing all this stuff about small gifts, small gifts with Bernie Sanders and Obama. And then now everybody's talking about recurring giving programs and things like that on, you know, the the individual nonprofit side. Right. It's taken a few years for that to kind of filter down. But all overall, though, if it's getting sold to people across the board and I'm suddenly getting some direct mail piece with a, a dime in it to say, you know, yeah. send this back to me. This yeah. is where donor trust goes away. Yeah. And so that's that's one of the things that I'm really heavily concerned about, especially as we hear more about things like AI in the space. And the average nonprofit is like, I don't know what to do with freaking AI. Yeah. Like, you know, just help me help me connect with people better. That's what we should be focusing on. The tech should be an accelerant, not a hindrance or a distraction to this stuff. Yeah, I like what uh, Peter Thiel talks about. He talks about in his book, uh, Zero to One, he talks about the idea of technology that's either competitive or complementary. And the idea that we can have when, when you're working with a competitive technology, which when I walk around, then I haven't been to AFPs. A lot of us haven't been to an AFP conference for, exact, for, for a long time, in fact. Yep. But when yep. I walk around the hall at an AFP conference, for example, I'm looking at a lot of competitive technology, which is to say that a lot of these firms, ultimately, if they sort of carry this out to their ultimate sort of capabilities, they're basically going to do do away with the necessity of the fundraiser altogether because they're gathering the capabilities all along the process. And so how do we actually invest in technologies and companies that actually say that the fundraiser needs to be seated across the table, building a meaningful relationship with the donor, having the type of dialogue that Fieri would be talking about, yep. not kissing their ass, not, no. not, not, not all this donor-centered sort of wonky wonk, but actually having meaningful conversations which push the donor to think more carefully and critically 
specifically about what they do. How do we, how do technology firms sort of fit into that, into that sort of conversation? And I can't imagine, you know, I, I think about the, um, I think about the people that are sort of sitting around the table at a giving USA, you were talking about giving USA, for example. It's a bunch of Ed Bernays sort of people that basically sort of it, it, it's it's PR and marketing stuff, man. I, I I just I don't I think there's got to be sort of an evolution in who's at the front of the room, who gets the privilege of talking, and then companies like yours have sort of got to align themselves yep. with these voices. Well, and I agree, and I would even say in Giving USA, the membership has only relatively recently evolved to even include tech companies because it was a lot of consulting firms for the for a very long time, and that's kind of the, the core founding. And so there's some structural elements that that within that body that need to understand where technology plays a role in these types of things. And then furthermore, uh, I think that the problem, and so when I first started 10 years ago at Neon, the data point was that the average organization, and, and again, the the average nonprofit in our space, like 90% of them have under $3 million in revenue. We had to remind ourselves about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so there are a lot more like the jobs that I had where it was like, I was a crappy fundraiser in my second job again, fired because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And it's because part of it was that I had no database. Literally, somebody walked out of the nonprofit with the access database on a computer. And so I got there and I'm like, what am I supposed to do? And so most the data point is that there's three to five different data sources that most nonprofits have to deal with to even understand who somebody is. So that's part of it where they can't even when they are sitting across the table, they can't accurately say if that person's on their email list or if they attended a workshop to come in. And so especially if you look at some of the the privacy elements that that Apple is putting into place, you have to kind of give the value of learning and being part of that journey at the very start of the relationship. I'm going to opt into my newsletter and I'm going to give you permission to tell me about things. And I don't want you to spam me. I don't want you to abuse that relationship. But along the way, let's build something together and enrich things. It's not I can't tell you how many people have freaking Oprah in their databases and that they're just like emailing (laughs) Oprah over and over and over. And so you have to start with who is your donor community and inviting them in. And, and building that narrative together. And ultimately, I feel that that's the same thing that tech companies should be doing with the nonprofits that they serve, too. It should be that that collective building. That's even why I want to work with like and open up the research so people can come to say and say, you have millions and millions of data points. I'm going to tell you what I need, not the opposite way around so I can pitch you shit. That's not what should so, be happening. So when are we going to start talking about when in the nonprofit space with all these CRM conversations? I mean, the, 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 and that's kind of this continuum that I sort of picked up on a couple of years ago as I after I sort of came on the scene with my with my first book. And I started yep. to sort of realize that there was sort of this continuum. You sort of got into you sort of you did your time as a fundraiser for 10 or 12, 15 years. You became a you became a consultant and you thought you convinced yourself that you could start a CRM company. And 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 and. and, and and um, I want to know, so when are we going to start having sort of the Doc Searles conversation? The idea that 
that eventually the donor is going to be on the other side of that CRM and they're going to basically be able to switch. If, if they want to basically switch off their, your access to their name, they're somehow or another going to be able to do that. It's, it's going to have that conversation. It's, it's, it's happening very soon. Not only are we seeing this with data privacy laws like what are coming out of California, for instance, and what's happening in Europe, like GDPR, we should not be putting our head in the sand about that yeah, coming to the yeah. U.S. in a certain standpoint, but even on the crypto space. I right. Mean, is that, I, isn't that basically citizen that and that's what I mean by like yes. I, I was talking to somebody on Love my it. podcast recently. It's like the parents who are showing up at these school board meetings, all these parents in the midst of this pandemic are totally pissed off about either mask mandates, the CRT curriculum, or gun laws or something, right? And yeah. they're all over the political spectrum, but they're basically showing up like citizens and they're basically saying, Look, if you do not respond to me, I don't have to necessarily be right or wrong, but I do have the right to walk away to exit your system. And I think that's what the donor community is going to eventually do to us if we do not if we do not just keep if we keep just investing in the notion like Searles talks about that we can sort of control the relationship. Eventually, these donors are just going to access their, the system and they're going to literally switch us off. And, they're, and we're not going to have their email address. We're not going to know where they live because they're going to turn us off. And well, and I think there's a balance there though too. And 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 I know we're coming up to time, but like, and I don't want to sound like George Costanza. We're living in a society, right? Like, like that's the other piece here is that we have to balance that the community need versus the individual need. Sure. And and that's the problem, though, that nonprofits are starting to to abuse too much of the the spectrum of not respecting the donor part of being the community too. So there is that balance. I don't have an answer when it comes to that type of stuff either, but I do know that we are in the next three to five years is this is the most critical time for us to have these conversations because otherwise the entire industry is going to collapse. Yeah. I I don't think you have to. You're right. Right. And I don't think, I think the nonprofit sector has to wake up to the idea that sometimes our board meetings, you know, we got these board of trustees at, 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 at you know, large to small shops. And I think we yep. need to be, I, 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 I'm going to start beating this drum really loudly if I can sort of figure out how to most eloquently articulate it. Nonprofit boards, for example, have relied on marketing and PR to sort of inform their thinking, who they hire in the fundraising mm-hmm. ranks, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, mm-hmm. partnering with CRM companies. And they've got to start realizing that their donors are going to start behaving like citizens showing up at these school board meetings. And that's a different paradigm. That's a completely different paradigm. And if you're not giving them an opportunity to, quote unquote, show up at your board meeting and voice their opinion, they're going to go away. And and in certain cases, I would make an argument that some of those donors, but that gets you into kind of the donor centricity side where are they are they actually dictating a negative and toxic relationship with your organization, especially if they have a lot of money and say, I'm going to pull my money if you don't stop doing this thing that actually is for the larger benefit. And we are seeing situations where fundraisers are starting to say, no, that's a bad behavior. And I don't need you as part of my community because other people will step up who believe in me. And I think it's it's ultimately coming down to identity. And it's 
understanding what our identity is, not only as a sector, not only as an organization, but as a fundraiser and in its relationship with the donor identity, too. That's why I love talking to people like Lisa Greer. That's why I love talking to to average fundraisers uh, who are working and not getting the big case study money that they're going to get thrust in front of, you know, the big professional associations and stuff like that. What's happening on the ground? We don't Ultimately, this comes back to my degree. I love what's happening on the ground. I love talking to all different types of people, all different types of perspectives, because that's how we're going to shift things forward. I think this is a good thing because we are at an opportunity point to create a new future that is more connected. I do think that this is the time to finally start having that conversation and actually doing it. Yeah, Tim, this has been an engaging conversation, and you're right. We lose our listeners in about 45 minutes, but I think what the opportunity is for people like yourself, myself, CRM companies, tech companies, everybody who sort of exists in and around the sort of the nonprofit and the fundraiser on the ground trying to raise a hell of a lot of money in many cases is that, and this takes us all the way back to the beginning of the conversation, that that critical consciousness that, that Fieri yes. talked about. If we cannot sort of get beyond sort of that magical and that naive level of consciousness that consciousness that he talked about that we've largely been spoon fed for the entire 20th century. And we start to think more critically, like putting your sort of putting your lowering your dukes and not making this a defensive conversation and sort of listening to some of the things that you and I have sort of spit out on the table here in the last 45 minutes doesn't necessarily mean you have to agree with us. You just have to be able to sort of critically wrestle with some of this stuff. And I think there's a generation of people that are coming in behind you and I So, you know, when you think about the people who've sort of championed the sector to where it is today ahead of us, and then the young people that are coming in behind me, like the students over at the college that I'm teaching this afternoon, I think Mm -hmm. that generation is coming in with a much more critical understanding earlier in their careers um, than necessarily even you and I necessarily did. It's, Um, It's the experience economy that they live in. And where they yeah. they they want to have something that's much more meaningful. I did a TEDx talk, and two of the kids in high school that I met had already founded nonprofits. Right, right. and I'm exactly. like, what the right. hell? I was right. Right. I was like lucky yeah. to you know I was sitting in the parking lot drinking you know 40s basically when yeah. I was your age, right? Yeah, I like so- this I, is- exactly. I got a sophomore in my class last week, so class started last week, and a young man comes up to me and he says, you know, should I start a nonprofit? And he's asking me questions, and he's talking about you know getting his 501c3 and I whatever. And I said, forget all that wonky wonk. I said, what you need to do is you need to go out and actually deliver on what it is the organization's doing. See if you can actually get somebody behind it and prove that it actually matters to somebody other than just yourself and and your circle of buddies that are drinking beer and eating pizza on Friday night. And and that's the thing that even goes back to some of the core data that we're looking at is that it's not that Households are less generous. This is the the big idea, going back to that, to tie a bow on it. It's not that people are less generous. It's their priorities. And what yeah. I mean by that is that during the pandemic, I was sending $25 to my friend who got laid off from a restaurant job, for instance, right? Yeah. That's not showing up in the IRS data. Yeah. And so it's not that people are less generous. It's not that certain households or incomes are less generous or certain races or genders or things like that. The data yeah. is very clear that we as Americans are quite generous. Yep, it's yep. what we are defining the difference between generosity and philanthropy and the professionalization of it versus the actual reality that we're carrying out economically. And if people don't want to give to a 501c3 because you're not doing it, 
what they're going to do is they're not going to stop giving. They're going to shift their focus to where they're going to get that connection. Oh. I think I think we tied it together. I think yeah, we tied, tied it, together. it together. But then you threw the professionalization into that social imaginary that I'm sitting there thinking about. So, well, we only we only have yeah. time for for this today. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll leave that for another episode. Another Tim, day. this has been a very uh, it, uh, warming up. It is a Monday morning. I'm heading to class. I'm sure you've got a big week ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but this has been a good place for us to warm up. Probably a very productive and exciting week for both of us. I do hope. Um, Tim, somebody's going to be interested in this conversation. Usually the guy in your seat, the guy or gal in your seat gets more feedback and follow up than I necessarily do. Um, sure. tell us about how they find your product. Tell us how to find neon one. Cause it sounds like you guys are willing to at least have some pretty, uh, careful and critical conversations about this stuff. And then if somebody's reaching out to you partic- in particular, Tim, tell us how to find you as well. Yeah. Uh, so, so www.neon one, like the light and the number uh dot com for that uh and and go to the resources section and look at the ungated content you don't have to give us an email if you want to check things out by the way um and and i do encourage that uh so we're not getting you into some awkward nurture campaign that you don't give a shit about like let's (laughs) only talk if you want to talk so you can also reach out to me directly at tim at neon1.com or connect with me on LinkedIn because I keep commenting on Jason's stuff. Tim, you this was a great conversation. Uh, I enjoyed it. You're always welcome back. Well, thank you, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.